We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The fact that we can now do in our homes what once required professional help is hurting some industries. The recording industry in St. Louis is a case in point. How and why is detailed in a documentary film that is featured in this year's Cinema St. Louis Filmmakers Showcase. It's titled Gateway Sound and will be shown this Saturday. Joining me to talk about it is Justin Fisher. He is the producer and director of Gateway Sound. He's also a professional audio engineer with Smith Lee Productions and an adjunct professor at Webster University. Justin, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, tell me what's changed in the world of studio sound recording that would inspire an hour-long documentary. (laughs) (laughs) What hasn't changed, I guess, is the the more important question. Um, The biggest thing... And, and we go into this a lot in the documentary is, is technology, you know, just in the broad sense, everything from what medium we record onto, you know, tape versus hard drive now, uh, and even how we deliver materials. So, you know, in the old days, you'd have to FedEx somebody or UPS somebody a big old box of tapes from the mix engineer to the mastering engineer. And now we uh, we use Dropbox and, and things like that. So, you know, every aspect from from recording to actually getting it to the consumer is is completely different. With today's technology, I, I understand, and it's certainly pointed out in your documentary, which I enjoyed, by the way, is the fact that a lot of musicians and groups and what have you can now do the sort of thing they used to do in your studio in their bedroom or garage. Yeah, and and the funny thing is, is home studios have never we haven't had a time where there really hasn't been home studios mm-hmm. you know not that that part hasn't changed you know we Les Paul had a home studio in his car and you know he'd he'd take a recorder from from hotel room to hotel room and and record uh but now the difference is we have a better quality um and a cheaper price point you know mm-hmm. even though in the past mm-hmm. a lot of people could still have access to recording at home the price of entry was still pretty high, you know. So not in, everybody in, in the, in the uh, price of the equipment they had to buy. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you know, buying a, a tape machine, you know, in twenty, thirty years ago, if you bought a sixteen track or an eight track tape machine, might set you back, you know, a few grand. Mm-hmm. Well, now you might still pay a few grand, but that's on your laptop, and everybody has a laptop. You know, you you just have to buy a little recording interface, and that might set you back a hundred bucks. And and the software now is, you can get software for free. And you know, Audacity is one that you can get for free. And there's many other cheaper options too. It would seem to me though that the loss uh, w- would offset the gain in a sense, uh, in in terms of what uh, people are able to do outside of the studio. Uh, to a certain extent, I mean, it is still always going to come down to the talent, you know, and and that's the one thing that that we kind of drive home in the documentary, too, is that just because you can do it um, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good product. But that doesn't mean that a good product can't come out of home studios. Of course, that's, you know, ridiculous because there's many, many great recordings that people sometimes don't even know were done in home studios, you know. So I I do think that it's, it's a situation where you don't 
you can't blame the technology necessarily, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a factor. Mm-hmm. The uh, are the musicians uh, c- coming in that that is the are singers and other musicians coming to you in, in fewer numbers these days as a result of all of this. Um. Yeah, but that's not necessarily an issue of the home studios per se. Like you know, like I said earlier, home studios have always been around. Um, I think each city is going to be a little unique. Mm-hmm. Um, St. Louis has a lot of recording studios for the size of the city, mm-hmm. so you know some studios may kind of like focus on a certain type of music or a certain type of work. You know, you might have some studios that just do corporate work or some studios that do just music or just a certain type of music. So the uh, the combination of the amount of studios, the fact that people are recording at home too, um, and, and also the fact that not everybody is doing everything at the studio as well. Like you should really probably do drums in a recording studio, mm-hmm. you know, because the space – has so much to do with the sound of the recording, and that's everything. Uh, but you might not need to do bass at a recording studio, or maybe not vocals at a recording studio. You know, so don't you want to have them all together though? If they're the single group, in theory, yes. Yeah. It's, it's it's you know going to be music genre dependent. So like a hip hop song is going to have a lot different requirements than a jazz tune. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- that's that's a big factor too. Um, you, you know, you'd pretty much always want to have people that are doing jazz together, mm-hmm. playing as a group. Uh, but you know, if you're just doing vocals for a track. It's not necessarily the case. What uh, difference is this making for the consumer? I'm thinking that most of us today are listening to whatever we're listening to with earbuds or on our telephones or maybe our laptop. Uh, The speakers are small, no woofers and tweeters as once was the case. That's very correct. And I think that also uh, kind of smooths over the fact that maybe the the recordings might not always be as good, it won't matter as much. Mm-hmm. You know, when you do have those situations where people are listening, I'm astonished at the amount of people that listen to music exclusively on their phones. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even talking through earbuds. I just mean on, the, sure. on the phone speaker, yeah. which is crazy, or their laptop. Um, so the low end is like totally just gone. It doesn't exist. Um, but the funny thing is, is the way that people are streaming or <laughs> the way that people are getting music is, is through streaming now, mostly. And this, the digital algorithms kind of lose some low end too, especially if you go on Bluetooth. Bluetooth is horrible for that. And uh, so that loses a lot of low end as well. Um, so, you know, the fidelity isn't there mm-hmm. as it used to. You know, people would pride themselves on their home theaters and their home studio or on their home uh, entertainment systems, you know, and have big standing speakers and all that. What, what about the ability to manipulate the music in the various parts and layer the music? You mentioned Les Paul. I guess he got that all started with multiple track yeah, exactly. uh, recording. Uh, how much of that can be done outside of a studio now? Uh, you know, the, the capabilities of putting a song together, the capabilities of a mix can equally be done anywhere you know it's it's not really an issue it's it's mostly when you go to a studio you're dealing with better acoustics usually better equipment maybe microphones and preamps and all that stuff to make the sound more full you know um but also the the biggest factor is is the person doing it 
you know, the engineer. So you might have someone doing that job literally every day, all day. Mm-hmm. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to factor into the recording. How so? I mean, you make a big point of this in the, in the film. Uh, how important is the engineer? And is it so much important than me working my laptop once I get pretty good at it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about knowing how to get good sounds. Mm-hmm. You know, knowing where to put the microphone is, is everything. And, and, you know, certain – knowing what micro, what microphone to use or, or where to place it is everything. I mean the, the mix, doing things afterwards and post-production, you know, there's always things that we can do to fix it afterwards. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's that old uh, phrase, garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. You know, if you start with a great recording from the beginning – there's less that you have to do afterwards. You know, let, let's go back a few years and talk about the way you were doing this, let's say, 20 years ago. Were you at a point, tw- and you may not have been doing it then. You don't look old enough maybe to go back <laughs> quite that far. But what, were you, uh, what was being done then? Let me put it that way. Was that roughly equivalent to what can be done in the garage today with the laptop? Um, not really. I mean, 20 years ago was a, a really a transitional period yeah. because digital was still in its infancy. So you had a lot of places still using tape, um, but a lot of places that were doing uh, digital tape-based systems, um, DATs and ADATs and things like that. So the the sound wasn't great, mm-hmm. um, but it was again it was a high cost of entry for a lot of people but you were still recording on on a physical medium on some sort of tape based device um and the tracks were very limited you know you might spend $2500 on eight tracks and now we spend that on unlimited tracks you know how, how many tracks would be typical for a typical recording today let's just say a small a small jazz group um 16ish but you know, if we go start adding a bunch of vocals and stuff like that and stack things up, that can increase that. But, you know, we can do a, a rock band that might have 200 tracks or something or a film that might have 200 plus tracks. 200 tracks. What in the world would you put on 200 <laughs> tracks? Many, many people say that uh, more, more tracks doesn't always equal better and sometimes <laughs> equals worse. Yeah. But, uh, you know, listening to the sound of modern recordings now is quite different than listening to something in the 80s or the 70s. You know, anybody can just compare those two types of recordings and they're totally different and a lot goes into making things sound that way. Overall, is it uh, is the sound quality going to be better on tape as opposed to a, a digital format? Oh, that's that's the question of the ages that <laughs> still hasn't been answered. You know, it's, it's a subjective thing. Um, a lot of people prefer the sound of tape. And I think that's kind of why we see a vinyl resurgence. Well, that's now, what too. I was getting to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're two do- very different things. And, and I think with the vinyl thing, it's more of an, an I don't want to say a novelty, but I want to say a, a nostalgic thing and a a physical connection to that music as well. You know, you have you take the time and you sit down and you listen, and you have a an image to look at and the credits. And all of that stuff is in front of you, and it takes more care, um, and you, I think, in a way, respect the music more that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you know, obviously, there's a sound difference. Um, you know, everybody's got their opinions about it. I don't personally care for the sound of vinyl that much. Mm-hmm. You know, the it's very harsh. 
Uh, there's not as much low end as you would get from a digital medium. Um, but I don't think that really matters, you know. Apparently not. You hear an awful lot about this resurgence of vinyl mm-hmm. lately. I, I quite don't quite get it myself, <laughs> but uh, the people know, who know more about it than I do uh, swear by it. Yeah, I, I don't really care why people do it, but I'm excited that they do because it gets people interested and excited in music and the the art of listening to music rather than having it in the background. And anything that leads to that, in my opinion, is a good thing. Of course, one of the problems today with all of that is you have to have some place to play that vinyl. <laughs> and there aren't many record players around yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're seeing a lot of cheap ones come around, uh-huh. uh, but not a lot of the, the good stuff, you know, which is still, again, that's a high cost of entry as well for a good record player. Sure. What about you bring this up in the film, the issue of collaboration, the fact that people who are do-it-yourselfers don't have the ability to work with others, as it were. Yeah, and uh, working by yourself, you don't have other opinions or uh, somebody to say, oh, hey, that maybe is not a great idea or maybe we can make it better by doing this. You know, any, any art you know, maybe short of painting, mm-hmm. you're going to bounce off, bounce ideas off of someone and hopefully someone will give you constructive criticism. And in the studio, it's it's kind of that same way. But also you have people that have been doing it for a while and they say, hey, you know, we could really make this sound cool by doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's it, a band just inherently by itself is the same scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, as a guitar player, I might not have the best idea of how to play the bass or play the drums a certain way to really make the sound pop. Uh, but having those other members of the band contributing to the writing process will will take it to the next level. What What is gained on the part of musicians who go the do-it-yourself route? There must be pluses because they're doing it. Money. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> it's obviously a big one. Um, the ability to kind of work at your own pace. You know, let's face it, everybody's got a day job and financially not everyone's doing great these days, I don't think. So getting into a studio can be costly. I mean, it's it's much cheaper and more affordable than it is nowadays than it ever has been. Because of this insurgency. Uh, yeah, I mean, the you know, we, we talk about this in the film too, but the studio rates have dropped drastically. You know, at, at our studio, at, I, I work at Smithley Productions and um, you know, back in the 80s, we could charge 100 something dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. And now we usually charge anywhere from 75 to $50 an hour, depending on the project, um, which is usually about the going rate of not only everyone in St. Louis, but across the country. You know, I've had plenty of producers come in flying from L.A. and be like, oh, you know, the cost of studios in L.A. is not any different than it is here. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, that has evened out across the board. So where is it all going? I mean, ultimately, are we looking at a time when people will just be doing it themselves or will there always be a need for the sound studio? I don't think so. I I, I think people s- still are going to studios a lot now. Um, it's just there there's more people, I think, making music now. I don't have any facts to base that mm-hmm. on, but just under my impression because you have so many more people that have access to – instruments and and you know youtube is showing people how to play you know they don't have to go necessarily it's not the greatest idea but they don't necessarily have to go to somebody to learn how to play an instrument you know i think a lot of people got into 
the art of of music by video games like Rock Band and Guitar Hero and things like that. Um, so a lot more people, I think, are playing and, and making electronic music and things like that. So you have many more people who might want to get into a studio and they might not do their whole project there, but a studio can help in certain aspects. You know, maybe, hey, come over and, and, and record just your drums at the studio and I'll give you the files and you finish it at home. Or maybe you want to record your vocals on a really nice microphone. Come into the studio, we'll do it there. I suspect that what this is uh, doing also is bringing more people into the uh, into the field, uh, that is, as performers, because it is a little less expensive. They can mess around with it themselves. So what is that doing to the quality of music that's out there these days? Uh, <laughs> that's that's a long discussion in and of itself, you yeah. know, and, and you have opinions around the board of, uh, you know, how things sound now. The biggest thing for a lot of people is uh, over compression and making things loud. And, you know, that loudness war is never – is not a new thing that's been around, you know, since the record labels have been around. Um I think now people are starting to realize by listening to vinyl that maybe loud is not always better. And also there's a there was a big thing that went around a couple of years ago where people saw that there was an unmastered version of a Metallica song on the, the game <clears throat> Rock Band. And they go, hey, wait a minute. This sounds better than what's on my CD. Why mm-hmm. is that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, thousands of pe- people petitioned Metallica to remaster the, <laughs> the record. What does that mean? I'm not sure everybody understands so what when mastering you, a yeah, record means. So that's kind of the last step of the process. You, you do your recording and then you do your mixing and then usually things get mastered after that. So that's, that's kind putting of the, it all together. Yeah, it's kind of the final polish. I mean, in a traditional sense, mastering would be when you're mixing a record, you're taking all the instruments and you're making a cohesive song out of it. When you master it, you kind of take all the all the songs and make a cohesive record out of it mm-hmm. and make them all kind of sound the same. But a big part of the mastering for a lot of people is just making it loud. Mm-hmm. You know, loud enough to compete with whatever environment you're in. If you're in the car or your music is in the background, we want to make it so that you can hear everything equally. You know, Does the mastering that you would do in the studio, the final product, really uh, appreciably, is it really appreciably different than something I could do at home? Um, mastering, it really kind of depends on the song and how the song was mixed because sometimes people will bring me songs that are mixed in such a way that I can't really do much to it in the mastering anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm of the opinion that mastering shouldn't, should kind of be a do no harm process. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're there to make sure that all the songs are level with each other and sound the same. Uh, but some people's mastering process just in some cases can be detrimental and that's where we go, get into that loudness war thing. But can't the, the, the mastered version always be amended, improved, uh, changes made uh, to it? Or once it's mastered, usually is it not. done? Yeah, usually it's done and a lot of people go back to the original mixes. Mm-hmm. to re- You know, you see a lot of remastered versions, especially on, on uh, Spotify and things like that or even CDs that came out where you'd have a, a remaster from something that was done in the 70s or 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and they remaster it. And, you know, sometimes they're better, sometimes they're not. <laughs> you know, I usually tend to listen to the original version because that's what I grew up with, you know. Who does the master copy belong to? The artist or the studio that uh, put it together? Uh, the studio usually never owns a master, but depending on who 
distributed it or licensed it or published it, um, it could belong to the artist if it's an independent artist or it could belong to the record label. Mm -hmm. And there's countless people that went to battle over rights to masters of of records, you know. Have have uh, any studios in St. Louis gone out of business because of this um, modernization of the equipment? Um, well, plenty have gone out of business. I can't really attest to the, if that was the reason or not. Um, you know, we talk about Technosonic a bit, which is kind of an institution in the city. Um, you know, they were one of the oldest studios. You know, I think it was like eighty years or something like that that they sure. had been around. Um, you know, I don't I don't know if that was a factor or not for them. But, you know, there's plenty of studios that have come and gone and it's an expensive business. I mean, just building a studio is requires ridiculous amounts of money. And I'm not even talking about equipment. I'm just talking about building in the building. You know, all the acoustic treatment and multiple layers of walls and all that stuff is not cheap. Yeah, there's that word acoustic again. And clearly that's a very important factor in, in any of this. Definitely. Can, can you establish a kind of an acoustic whatever we want to – however we want to describe it uh, with this uh, in your garage? Um, it all comes down to the the original room itself mm-hmm. and the dimensions of the room because some rooms are, are – make a good studio and some don't. Yeah. Um, if anybody saw the documentary Sound City, they go into how – that was an old Vox amplifier factory and they put a studio in it and it just ended up sounding amazing just because, you know, that's sure. the layout of the room. But, you know, I I put a little home studio in my basement just so I can work on my own songs and stuff. It sounds horrible and it's like there's nothing I can do about it because of the dimensions of the space. It's got a really short uh, ceiling and all that. And amateurs probably don't understand the engineering of acoustics very well, generally. Generally not. Um, it's, it's a science. It's yeah. a very specific science. What do you hope uh, to accomplish with this, uh, with this video? Well... Um, Honestly, I, I kind of already did because I just wanted to make it uh-huh. and I, that was fun. Um, so in, in that respect, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. But you, but know, you have a story to tell as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like people to see it. You know, that's I didn't get into it to make money or anything and that was kind of what my ethos going into it. It was like that's not my goal. You know. Well, is there a goal perhaps in just alerting people in the business to what's going on and alerting uh, groups that want to get into the business that there's a different way to do it rather than doing it uh, uh, individually? Yeah, definitely. And it's you know a matter of kind of just making people aware of what's going on. And uh, you know people might want to get into the studio and, and A, think it's too expensive and they can't afford it. But you know there's there's – Many, many ways to incorporate a recording studio into people's process. And I don't want people to always think, oh, I have to start and finish a project in the studio and pay tens of thousands of dollars. That's not always the case. You can bring in what you've done at home and, sure. and work in the studio from that point. I do and that type too would be a savings because you wouldn't have the, the, you know, the full time to be expended in the studio. Definitely. I, I work with a lot of bands that may record stuff on their own and I'll mix it. Or may just record the drums and I'll give them the drum tracks and they record everything else and then they bring it back and I mix it. There's all kinds of ways to, to slice it. That's another form of the collaboration we exactly. talked about yep. a little while ago. Totally. Well, Justin Fisher, thank you for uh, 
telling us about this project of yours. Thank you. The producer and director of the uh, Gateway Sound is the name of the documentary. It's showing Saturday at 4 o'clock at Brown Hall at Washington University. Thank you once again. Good Thank luck you. to you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.